Hi, and welcome to episode seven of the Sister Cast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Zoe. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Yeah. So we thought we would dedicate episode seven to be about breast cancer and breast cancer awareness and topics about that. Mm-hmm. And it's a very personal episode for us. Um, our mother passed away from breast cancer in 2001. Yeah, 16 years ago. And a lot has changed since then, but a lot is still the same. And so there's lots to discuss. There's not a single person out there who doesn't have a connection, I think, to breast cancer and cancer. It's a a topic that I think is on a lot of people's minds in October and all year round. And um, so we thought we would... uh, Let's discuss it. Discuss it. it. Yeah. So um, a couple weeks ago, um, Veep star, Julia Louise Dreyfus. Yes. Julia Louise Dreyfus. Julia Louise Dreyfus, yep. She posted um, to social media in the most elegant way. Yeah, I thought that it was, I mean, it was a hand, well, it was a hand signed note. Like it was a picture of a letter that she had hand signed. And it read, um, oh, I'm going to cry just reading it. Okay. So her name is at the top of the note, um, Julia Louise Dreyfus. And then beneath that, it says, one in eight women get breast cancer. Today, I'm the one. The good news is that I have the most glorious group of supportive and caring family and friends and fantastic insurance through my union. The bad news is that not all women are so lucky. So let's fight all cancers and make universal health care a reality. Julia. And I cried when I saw it and I'm crying again now reading it um, because, you know, it's it is a deeply personal cancer, um, personal for us because our mom had breast cancer and passed away from it um but personal to any woman who's touched by it because um you know our breasts are a part of our often a part of our identity but not always and then you know sometimes they're removed and then our identity morphs and changes and yeah so what people might not know about this is that she found out about her cancer diagnosis the day after her historic win at the Emmys. Oh, wow. She won for the sixth time. So her sixth consecutive Emmy sets the record for the most wins by a performer in the same role in the same series. The next morning, she finds out that she has breast cancer. Wow. And Ups then, and downs, you know, eh? a couple weeks later, she made that public, yeah. elegant post that she's got cancer. So it's one in eight she says in an america it's one in nine in canada right one in nine canadian women is expected to develop breast cancer during her lifetime wow one in nine yeah and you know by the time a woman gets to her 80s or early 90s it's one in four at that point oh really yeah so if you live long enough more of us will be affected so as we age as we get older as our population ages it becomes more prevalent as but we get the good the news is it's about an 87% survival rate for yes, five years, which right? is a huge difference. So we haven't in the last 20 years since our mom was diagnosed or since our mom first probably got her breast cancer. Um, we've, we've made huge leaps in um, getting women diagnosed earlier and treating them, but we haven't brought the incidence of breast cancer itself down right? It's still happening at the exactly the same rates. It's that that is something which we haven't yet figured out at all in mm-hmm. in medicine. But our treatments have gotten so much better. I have a reader um, who two years ago now, when did I write Love on a Summer Night? Love on a Summer Night came out in 2015. Um, and I found out while I was writing that book that Kat um, Townsend, my reader, um, 
had stage four breast cancer. She was diagnosed with stage four breast breast cancer. And, you know, she's a reader and and I'm an author and that's the extent of our relationship. So I don't speak to her that often, but um, every so often I see her posting on Facebook and in reader groups. And I think, yes, you know, like there's, we, we, even for women who are diagnosed pretty late in their cancer development, we're, you know, women with stage four breast cancer are living for much longer than they used to. Um, And there's a lot of amazing treatments, but it's still, you know, really scary. And early intervention and early diagnosis is key. They don't do, um, I just went for my yearly physical. They don't do the touching. The clock. Yeah. Right. They don't do that anymore because they say it's just not good enough. Yeah. Right. Um, That they will happily send you for mammograms. Yeah. um, But. Like they're just, it's not enough because they're only doing it once a year or every couple of years. Right. And on yourself, it's good to do the touching. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, um, basically what's important to, to note is changes, but from year to year, a doctor doesn't remember what your breast tissue feels like. That's right. Yeah. Right. So it's not useful for them and they get a lot of false positives where, you know, if they feel a lump and then it turns out to be a cyst or it feels just to be scar tissue or just connect lumpy connective tissue I have a lot of lumpy connective tissue um in my breasts that you know they feel like lumps but they've always been there and nothing changes I haven't had a mammogram yet um I'm due because now we're 10 years I am now 10 years younger than when my mom was diagnosed yeah and so I will have to have one done soon sometime in the next six months I'll have my first um are you scared to go? I am scared to go. Yeah, 100%. But I'm, you know, I'm confident that my breast tissue hasn't changed because I do that, you know, constant. People say you should check monthly. I check daily. <laughs> like, really? I, the, well, weekly at the very least. Like, I am constantly inspecting my breast tissue. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, are you afraid? Well, yeah. I mean, totally. Like, I think, um, I, I think it's inevitable that I will at some point get breast cancer. Really? Mm-hmm. So that if you get it, does that mean I don't get it? <laughs> yes, I will take one for the team. But no, like I think just statistically, if your mom has had breast cancer, then there's a solid chance that you might. And I just, I always feel like I live my life as if at some point I'm going to get a cancer diagnosis. We should all live like that. Totally. Yes. Because if it's one in eight will get breast cancer. It's one in two will get a cancer diagnosis in Canada. Right. And around me right now, I know so many people who are touched by cancer. My friend Ruth Hay, who writes women's fiction, she's local here in London. Her husband um, has had prostate cancer for a number of years and it's now come back. And right. so it's gotten harder. Um, my husband, um, when we lived in Japan, which was years and years ago 2004 um one of his college um dorm mates um a woman got breast cancer she was in her late 20s at the time maybe even mid-20s she had a daughter um and she got breast cancer she had a mastectomy um on one side and went through you know, went through treatment and came out the other side cancer free. Thank you. Knock on one, well, knock on wood. And then had a son after her cancer and breastfed him on one breast on, on her remaining breast and has been cancer free since. So, I mean, there are some amazing stories too. Like just because I think, oh, it's inevitable that at some point I'm going to get breast cancer. I don't 
think I'm going to die from breast cancer, you know? Right. But I think cancer touches a lot of us. Like you say, one and two, mm-hmm. some kind of cancer at some point in our lives. Um, but I just, I, I definitely don't anticipate, I hope, <laughs> but I definitely don't anticipate living the rest of my life not being personally touched by it. Right. With my job, I've been able to come up with a lot of really fun fundraisers and um we've worked closely with the canadian breast cancer foundation and there was one that i did over 10 years ago yeah and it's still to this day one of my most favorite promotions i've ever done because it was so organic and it was a cause that was very close um to us and it was just just so cool Mm -hmm. so it was called tattoo for the cure and we did it 10 years ago. There was 35 people. And it started with our morning show host, Gail O'Brien, um, saying, you know what? I, I'd get a tattoo. I don't have a tattoo. I'd get a tattoo. I'd like it to be the pink ribbon. And I'll do it if I raise $1,000, which quickly turned into $2,000. And then she said, who else wants to do it with me? If you raise $500, a local tattoo studio in Cambridge will do a pink ribbon tattoo on you for free. We got 35 women think it was women mostly women there was probably a couple guys in there who came out and got tattoos and just the legs on this thing yeah and um we ran into a lot of issues sort of when we wanted to do it first we had to get like the blessing of the canadian breast cancer foundation right who was a little nervous they sure about that very first time they'd ever had like a tattoo for the cure which is interesting how much culture has changed in the last 10 mm-hmm. years that that mm-hmm. was like oh my goodness what are you doing 10 years ago yeah right because i mean there is some question whether tattoos cause cancer but then again everything causes cancer mm-hmm. right like if one in two people are going to get cancer in their mm-hmm. lifetime right but they were nervous they were like do we want to endorse tattoos but also something that was happening was their logo was changing Ah, okay right so the canadian breast cancer foundation if you remember from 10 years ago used to have a thin pink ribbon yeah as their logo and now it's like a big thick right pink ribbon, right and they were very concerned that people were going to be getting a tattoo of a pink ribbon and it would be the wrong logo <laughs> <laughs> and then like I think it was like a year because these things yeah, take time. They knew that it was in the pipeline. They knew it was in the pipeline. Right. And and they were concerned. I'm like, well, they're not getting your logo. Like, they're not getting the words like Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. Yeah. It's a pink ribbon. Right. A nice thin pink ribbon. Right. And, uh, and so, but we did it and we ended up. And then this summer, yeah. you ran into someone. I was at a book event and a, we were, t- I was talking about tattoos with a reader and she was from the KW area, and she said, a couple of years ago, I got a tattoo as part of a Tattoo for the Cure event, and she showed it to me, and I said, my sister started that event, and it's still, they're still doing it annually. They just, no, they just did it the once. Oh, they just did it the once. They just did it the once. I thought they said, I, so no. I didn't understand that. So this reader got it, and she thought it was a couple of years ago, but it must have been- 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't think they because I stayed at the I stayed at that station for only another year, right? And they I didn't do it again. Follow what they do. So yeah. no, that's really cool. We should do something like that. Get matching tattoos or do a big fundraiser. We should do a big fundraiser. <laughs> think bigger. Think bigger, Panda. <laughs> Sometimes that's my problem. 
I'm a little too literal sometimes. You're like, we could get matching tattoos. <laughs> sure. You're looking at me like, what? Let's share a little bit about um, mom's story, yeah. which that's our story when it comes to breast cancer. So um, as I remember it, and it'll be interesting to see if this is how you remember it. Um, she thought there was something going on with her breasts. Like yeah. she thought there was a lump. Like and she, she went to the doctor more than once about a it. A couple times. And yeah. they were like, oh no, you know, it's probably just a tissue or. Yeah. So she had a rash that kind of came and went a couple of times. And now we know that rashes can be breast cancer that a rash itself can be cancerous. But at the time, they were looking for lumps and they couldn't feel a lump. So so mom kept pushing Mm -hmm. to get um, these looked at. Yeah. And so then they sent her for a biopsy and I went with her to the biopsy. I don't know if it was the second biopsy or whatever, but it was one of the biopsies where they did the test and then Mm -hmm. it was like a week later that um she got got the the results results. yeah and I remember she picked me up from work I was working at like a little um fry truck and she picked me up from there she was crying and you know she said yeah yeah it's cancer yeah and it was like late August and we had been selling raspberries all summer and so there was a sign at the end of the road for all the cottagers said raspberries you know three kilometers and we went there and we started kicking the sign down she's like I'm not (laughs) selling any raspberries anymore I've got cancer so and that was you know early on and so you don't know like you know it it doesn't mean you're immediately into a hospital bed it just means we have to start treatment and all that kind of stuff but she's like screw this we're not selling any more raspberries Like so many, my mother's two-year cancer battle was filled with highs and lows. Eight months after her initial diagnosis, she was sure she had beat it. My mother was an excellent writer, and in April of 2000, as part of their Cancer Awareness Month, the Toronto Star, Canada's largest newspaper, published my mother's journal. It was called In From the Cold, A Survivor's Diary. I'd like to share with you her words. We don't promote that here, said my local pharmacist, handing back my breastfeeding poster along with my bag of cures. Breastfeeding, I asked? Politics, he said. I wept all the way home. In Japan, almost all babies suckle at the beloved breast for three years. Japan has the lowest breast cancer ratio in the world. As a baby, I was fed bottled milk and corn syrup for my first days, and suffered infected boils on my tiny legs. When I cried with hunger, my poor mom arose in the night to get the wood stove roaring to heat the expensive contents of my glass bottle. She did this because she was a new Canadian from Poland, and the doctor and midwife advised her not to be a cow in her new country. By formula, they told her. Oh, bovine irony. Awaking on Sunday morning in the farmhouse near the village of Clifford in southwestern Ontario, I couldn't lift my neck. This was a residual injury from a car accident 13 years early, flaring up with cruel timing. That evening, accommodations uncertain, I had to make a two and a half hour drive to London to begin five days of radiation treatment. Using my hands, I raised up from the bed in considerable pain. The empty house heard many swear words as I crawled to the toilet. Going to church was out of the question. I called the family doctor. I need to be admitted to the hospital in London tonight. 
Right now, I can't move my head more than three inches to the left or to the right, and I'm very scared, I said. I'll call down, he said, then left a message on my machine while I was in the barn watering the stock. There are no beds. You better get a hotel room. Good luck. I wept. My elderly parents, who once bought my formula milk with money needed for farming, came to my house for an extra key. Can I hug you? asked my mother, who was 75 and now stood half a head shorter than me at five foot two. No, it hurts, I said. So we shook hands, and my father's crooked fingers and thick hands squeezed mine too. I drove slowly through Clifford and followed the highway to Listowel, then through Exeter. I stopped to pee on a dark concession road and kept going until Highway 4 became Richmond Street in London, and I found the Cancer Care Hospital. I parked there and went to emergency. Can I get my blood pressure checked, I asked. Although normally low, I knew it would have ballooned to about 170 over 90 with all the narcotic in my painkillers. Maybe they will admit me. Take a seat. We'll get to you in about three hours, they said. Across the street, I remembered, was a former nurse's residence now used to house patients' relatives. The security guard there was in her 20s, in her immaculate and iron suit, and going to be a real cop one day. I told her I had a reservation, which was a lie, and she helped carry in my overnight bag and purse, which suddenly was overwhelmingly heavy. Booked into a room in the hot old building, I wept with joy to be near the salvation of London's radiation machines. But in the night when I needed to pee, I wept with pain as I went crawling down the hall. Dr. Edward Yu explained it all as I sat on the floor, back against the wall, finding a measure of relief. We have used the MRI to find five pinpricks of cancer, five hot spots on your spine. One is in a crushed vertebrae that is giving you so much pain getting out of bed. Normally, the vertebrae would heal, but not with the cancer in it. When we radiate that cancer, it will die, and the vertebrae will heal in several weeks. Your neck has no cancer, but much arthritis and degeneration. Your spinal cancer is not as life-threatening as your damaged neck. You must see an orthopedic surgeon to prevent paralysis. In the meantime, we will begin your radiation, he said. So there was an explanation. I felt safer. Radiation is light. When we point the light on your cancer, we will kill it, he continued. But the light must go somewhere. It will go to your stomach, which is used to darkness. It may not like Dr. Yu's radiation. I laughed out loud. He did too, and we shook hands. Day one. They mapped me and gave me tiny blue tattoos that made my belly a more interesting landscape. And then it was time to lie on the glass table for the first radiation session. Lying down, the hard part. I said some swear words and apologized later to those who had heard it. For 10 minutes, a light on my back and it was done. There was nothing to feel, just a light with about the power of 500 x-rays all in one pinpoint. One spinal hotspot gone to kingdom calm. The x-ray technicians helped me to my feet by supporting my back and head and the pain was not as great getting up. Rebecca, my firstborn, took time out of her exams at McMaster University to join me at the hospital. She accompanied me on the hospital shuttle bus to the Thameswood Lodge for radiation patients, helped me into bed, got me a walker, signed all the forms while I slept. Radiation makes you very fatigued, and your belly feels like it's full of eels. 
The lodge was a community of 50 radiation patients from Owen Sound and Woodstock, Sarnia and Windsor, and points in between. They were all friendly and kind and worried and tired. Some would be there for months. Of the six of us with breast cancer at the dinner table, eating grilled cheese on brown bread with cucumber slices, all six knew that we were formula-fed babies. The next day, Rebecca and I saw the orthopedic surgeon's resident. Not life-threatening, she said, of my seized neck, and more important, we expect it to relax and gain some range of motion within the next few weeks. She prescribed a more rigid neck brace. The surgeon arrived in time to join the others, helping me off the table. After he heard my swearing, he wrote a prescription for an electric bed for when I got home. Round two radiation went better, getting on and off the glass table. Four big attendants helped me, and I lowered my neck with my beloved scent-free towel. There was no swearing. They made us Christmas dinner early at the lodge, and we stuffed the eels with stuffing, turnip, turkey, salad, and pumpkin pie. A few of us sang carols around an organ, but not for long because radiation throats are dry, and we were tired and worried, and we all stank, even though none of us really did. My oldest went back to her world, and I made friends with the social work department at Cancer Care. I had a prescription for an electric up-and-down push bed for my farm, but I was tired. The eels didn't quit, and I didn't know how to convert the orthopedic surgeon's say-so into a $1,000 bed in my living room. There are certain procedures to channel, the social worker said over coffee that stunk, and I tried not to cry into my wonderful towel. She called home care, who had been contracted by my family doctor already, and said they were planning to see me soon. Not on the Friday when I was to arrive home, but maybe the Monday. And then the charting would begin, and I could have my electric up-and-down push-button swear-free bed by the new year. Please try not to cry, the social worker said. I understand you've been through a lot, but there are channels, you see. Can you visualize a relaxation? Round three radiation was a piece of cake on the glass table. That night, I went foraging at 4 a.m. and found cinnamon toast with blueberry jam, my soya milk, raisin bran, and grapefruit juice for my eels. Because I stank, I soaked in the tub, but not for long. While you, are, while you have radiation, your skin is weak, and they tell you not to scrub much. Round four today. Note from my friend, the channeling social worker. Home care will call you about the electric bed. It's definitely in the works for Monday or very soon after. Take care. Round four on the glass table was doable. And afterward, I walked from the lodge in the falling snow to the shop for the family Christmas dinner. I was covered with snow by the time I got to the supermarket and a ledge of white covered my sturdy neck brace. A lady in the checkout line asked about my collar and offered a lift back to the clinic. She made a wrong turn, though, and dropped me off next door at the Ronald McDonald House, where the shuttle passed every 15 minutes. I rang the doorbell just to make sure, because I was radiated and tired and cold and wanted to get back to the lodge as soon as possible. And the eels wanted food. Yeah, the shuttle always comes by. Yeah, wait there. You can't come in, said the person behind the door. The snow was up to my nose on my neck collar and it was so cold I started to cry. I rang the doorbell of a nearby office. A lady in yellow said you had to call the shuttle, and she would do that for me. I wept until she came back and said, it will be here in five minutes. The shuttle took a roundabout route, but at least I was out of the relentless cold. 
Finally, I fed the eels and slept. Later, we played three-handed bridge without much pleasure. One player, a former Anglican priest, asked about my raspberry leaf tea, so I gave him the open package with my farm's address on it and welcomed him to come and visit. He asked if he could hug me, and he did, but he stank, and I said I didn't feel well, and I went and hid in my room. My last day, a message at the desk came from home care. The electric push-button swear-free bed will be there when you arrive. Hooray, hooray! Don't we channel good? I danced on the shuttle bus and flew on the glass table with the help of my four attendants. I wrote a note to my doctor. I still like you, Dr. Yu. Radiation, not so much. Middle kid Amanda took a bus from her college in Kitchener, loaded up my laundry, peeled me off the bed, frowned when I swore, and took the wheel of the car. It still pinched my poor neck, so when we got as far as Clinton, I took the wheel and she looked left and right for me. We made it in time to pick up my mail and the lights were on at home. My mother had put a feather comforter on the electric push button bed and was frying onions with buckwheat cassia when we arrived. Her arthritic hands had washed the table, walls, fridge and stove so my kitchen gleamed. The sheep were fine and Jennifer Ruth, the guard donkey, brayed magnificently from the barnyard. I was loved by the best. Heaven is home by the window, watching the snow swirl around the panes in a wonderful bed with fingertip controls for raising me up from a sleep without pain. Cordless phone at the ready. I take calls from neighbors and people from my church who have been praying for me. There's a tap at the door and in comes well-dressed ladies with plates of squares and bowls of tangerines. I cook brown rice and stir-fry broccoli, grated ginger, red cabbage, and a handful of flaxseed. I consume bowls of it, and soon constipation is a naughty memory, and the eels have slipped away for good. While I was having radiation, a song rang through my head that I could not shake. It was horrible, materialistic, and went like this. Hut, 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 boom, haya, hut, hut, boom. I heard it for five days, but now it fades, and Christmas carols from my own kitchen have me singing along. I have never been happier in my life. My neighbor Elizabeth knocked and came in. One of my sheep was dead. On Sunday, another neighbor picked me up from church. Everyone stared at my Philadelphia collar, and many times my hand were squeezed on the way to the pew. Again, the congregation prayed for me, and my tears of joy bathed my neck brace. Later that day, a church member delivered jugs of spring water from nearby Mild May and a plate of treats into the fridge while I slept. Then my oncologist secretary was on the phone from Owen Sound. She said they had a date, finally, to get me to visit Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto. This would evaluate me for bone marrow banking prior to chemotherapy. Too late. Frustrated by the long delays and unreturned phone calls, I had gone oncologist shopping and found someone I respected in Kitchener. It was on her advice that I went straight away for radiation treatment. No longer interested, I told the secretary. That night, we celebrated Polish Christmas at home. Elizabeth brought a poinsettia, then did the chores. She came back in and said, two more sheep were bloated and lying on their backs, dead. She and her son pulled them to the manure pile and covered them with straw so the coyotes wouldn't come. When Middle Kid arrived back from her waitress job, I was in the barn. 
The children who had helped me move the grain a week ago had come back with their dad to see if I needed anything. I did. By night, there were four dead sheep, another one down, and two moaning. The children cried and helped their father pull the dead ones with baler twine tied to their stiff legs to the manure pile. The children helped the drowned ewe stand, and we gave her electrolyte medicine. She licked the container because it tasted good. Either the sheep were getting copper contamination grain or were bloating from being overfed. I called the feed store, and they begged samples for the lab. In a week, we would know. Until then, we had good alfalfa hay to use as feed. Both daughters were home making Polish Christmas dinner, our feast of Vigilia. First, you fry a dozen chopped onions so the house smells right. We will have 12 meatless dishes out of respect for the manger, animals that visited baby Jesus. They, the downed ewe got bright-eyed and had plenty of milk. If she lives, she will lamb soon. A sheep, even in good health, who cannot get up from the cast position, will die within days. Legs up in the sky. This one is eating hay and looks happy. The fifth ewe died and the remaining moaner did not look good. The co-op report came back, zero on copper contamination. They were simply overfed by my neighbor out of love. I did the same thing in my early shepherding years. Young sheeps have, se young sheeps have sensitive bellies, and once they bung up, they fade fast. Had I told Elizabeth to stick with our alfalfa hay and never mind the grain, we wouldn't have lost any. Hindsight is twenty twenty. A phone call. Dr. Campbell, my Yellow Pages oncologist who found my spinal cancer and had it dealt with in lightning speed, was asking about my pain level. My neck is still tender, but I'm not in pain, I said. How much Percodin are you taking, she asked. None for several days. That's okay, right? She laughed, and it sounded like an angel in pleasure. Catherine, if you are not in pain, it means the tamoxifen is keeping your cancer at bay. It means you will do very well. That is very okay. Another Vigilia present has been given. I asked her when I would be starting chemotherapy, the next mountain on the journey. I'll be monitoring you, but you probably won't be needing chemotherapy at all. Merry Christmas. I can barely take in the news. In August 1999, my country doctor told me in no uncertain terms that I had breast cancer, and I did not believe him. In September, I lost my left breast to surgery, and in October, healed up those scars. In November, I lost confidence in one oncologist and found another. In December, I was witness to the first-class care of OHIP's radiation therapy for spinal cancer patients. My ordeal is over. My bottled milk cancer is behind me. God is heaven, and I live with my remaining 94 sheep and Jennifer Roof, the guard donkey, in the next nicest place near Clifford, Ontario. Twelve days into the new century, twin lambs were born with the promise of many more to follow. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the story. My mom did pass away from cancer after a two-year battle. The morning that she passed away, um, we were all there. Mm -hmm. Everyone was there. You were there with your husband. I was there. No, Jer was, Jer was overseas. Remember, I was on the phone with him when she died. Did dad come up? Dad came yeah. up. Yeah. Our parents have been separated for years. Yeah, divorced for years. Years, years, years. years. My husband was in Bosnia. Um, he was with the military. And he was um, um, 
he was he was in Bosnia and he could only call me. And so he called the hospital room. Um, I'd given him the phone number. He called the hospital room. And so I wasn't I was looking at her. I was sitting on the chair and my feet were kind of up on the railing of the, the side railing. So my feet were on the railing of the hospital bed, but I wasn't watching. Right. Like, so I was there, but I was talking to Jeremy. And I was telling him how the night had gone and how everyone had left the room. And then I looked kind of I I hadn't looked away but I looked again at her like I I was my face was pointing in that direction but I wasn't seeing her and then I kind of refocused and I realized she's not breathing anymore and so I dropped the phone and I went to call the nurse and the nurse came in and then I realized I picked up the phone and I realized Jeremy was gone and so I just hung up the phone because I can't call him back because Mm -hmm. he's in Bosnia and um and then she said, okay, well, you guys can have a few more, you know, have more time in here. Um, and then everybody else came back. And then I realized Jeremy still hadn't called back, which is really weird, right? Because he he must have known what had happened. Um, and the nurse wanted us to move to another room so she could prepare the body for the funeral home. And I didn't want to leave the phone because that was the only number that Jer had to call back. And it took him forever. What felt like forever. It actually wasn't that long. I think that um, she died at 9.15 maybe in the morning. And I think he probably was able to call back just after 10. Because it was 9.11. And um, he wasn't able to call back because their base had been locked down. And then he told me that he wouldn't be able to come back for the funeral. Because all um, transatlantic flights had been canceled and I should probably turn on the news. And we turned on the news and we saw the Twin Towers falling and we realized that she would have, she died right around the same time that the, one of the planes hit the towers. And so for us, it's like every year the entire world marks the anniversary of her death. I was 20 when she passed away, and now she's been gone for 16 years. In four years, she'll be gone for as long as she was here with me, and that sucks. Growing up, I loved how passionate my mom was, passionate to a fault when it came to breastfeeding. Her passion took us around the world. Was it embarrassing sometimes? For sure. I remember when I was a tween, friends would come over to our house, and they would see large frame prints of women breastfeeding. These were posters that my mom had produced and they really were works of art. But my friends would think it would be odd that we'd have these hanging up in our house. Well, now I have a framed poster of one of her friends of breastfeeding posters hanging up in my hallway. I walk past it 30 times a day. Always makes me smile. And my daughter's friends have walked by it many times and they've never once said anything. And I'm not taking it down. Not even when they're tweens. I'm sad sometimes that my mother's magazine and work isn't flourishing today. It's getting harder and harder to Google her and find much. Time marches on, and it's time for the next generation to find their passion. I started in January a 365-day breastfeeding challenge on Instagram to honor my mother. And even for me, it's been increasingly hard in the past few months to keep it going. Sometimes when I post a photo... I worry what others are going to think. Am I bragging the fact that I'm still breastfeeding? Maybe I'm making people uncomfortable watching me breastfeed. Why is it so difficult? Why can't a picture just be a picture? And why can't people 
just care about themselves. Why do we have to worry about what other people think of us? My mom certainly didn't. But I'm done being sad. It's not fun to think about what I'm missing out and what my daughters are missing out on. It's not fun to think my mom missed my wedding. My mom missed my, the birth of my children. And she missed being a grandmother. That's what cancer robs us of. The healthiest of us will get cancer. So please, listen to your body and know your body. And if you need help, get it as quick as you can. My mother was the loudest and most passionate person I know. The squeakiest wheel out there. And she wasn't loud enough. Remember that if you have cancer in your family, that you want to start having mammograms 10 years before that relative's diagnosis or at 40 or 45 or 50, depending on whatever your local, you know, every every region has like a slightly different recommendation. But definitely all women should be talking to their doctors about this or their primary health care provider. Um Check yourself out regularly. Look at your tatas. Know your boobs. Yeah, get it's to really know them. the most important thing. And um, and if you have a partner, you know, if your partner says, "Hey, something feels different here," you know, believe them because that can sometimes be how people figure it out too. Yeah, trust your gut. It's yeah. very rarely not yeah. wrong. And stick up for yourself and be an advocate if you are like our mom and you initially get kind of the brush off. Doctors don't do that as much these days, but not everybody is perfect. So trust yourself. Trust yourself. Thank you so much for joining us on the SisterCast.